Hello and welcome to the podcast we are calling Playing to Win During the Great American Timeout. Well, we are now off the map, are we not? Nothing of this magnitude has happened in any of our lifetimes. I, like you, am not immune from the different things that are the sources of chaos in our lives. As a father of three daughters who are now all out of school, I too am enjoying all of the chaos that that brings with it, blessed though it may be. Uh, We have canceled AP tests, canceled SATs, canceled college trips, canceled vacations, canceled all sorts of things. But I will say this, having spent north of 20 years in ministry, I've been present at many moments of chaos, both in society and in the lives of real people. And if I could give us all one piece of advice, it would be this. We must realize that we are not always in control. Let me say that again. We must realize that we are not always in control, but... God still is, and that is better. After all, calm is found in surrendering control to God and picking up the basin and the towel, that it's in those times that we are comforted. Today, I'd like to give you five things that I hope will encourage you, beginning with Scripture, which is where all of us should go first to seek wisdom for times like those we are in. This is particularly poignant for those of us worried about our jobs or money right now. I'm guessing there's many of us out there in that camp. And so allow me to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. Don't store up for, tre- don't, st- well, that's a great start, isn't it? Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your heart will be also. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, and yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. The sum of the message there is this, Christians. We are not fully in control that God is in control, and that his goodness extends to even times that 
are unique, like the ones we're in. It extends even to times when we're not sure maybe what we're going to eat or drink. The Bible is saying, seek the kingdom and trust that he will provide for you. And he gives all these examples, looking around the lilies of the field and how they grow, the birds of the air. And if you get the chance, maybe the next time that you're outside, assuming you ever do leave your house, and I hope you will at some point, at least go out and catch a breath of fresh air, look around at the flowers, look at the birds in the air, and consider what we just read, that God is in control, and that is thoroughly good news. Now to all of us, this time brings opportunities to show radical grace to people. In an op-ed that I wrote in last Sunday's San Diego Union Tribune called The Church is Never Canceled, I mentioned something called the Plague of Cyprian, and uh, I would like to talk a little bit more about that particular moment in history because I think it'll be inspiring to you to let you know, first of all, that the world has faced actually worse than this, and also that Christians have a unique history of running into situations like this and doing some great work on God's behalf. And so to do that, I'm going to refer to something written by Candida Moss, a New Testament professor at the University of Notre Dame, on the CNN Belief blog. And the headline is, How an Apocalyptic Plague Helps Spread Christianity. She writes, Archaeologists in Egypt have unearthed relics from an apocalyptic plague that some Christians believe heralded the end of the world, an idea that likely helped spread faith centuries ago. A team from the Italian archaeological mission to Luxor unearthed the remains in a, uh, in a funerary, 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 say it however you like, complex in the ancient city of Thebes. The city is now known as Luxor. As archaeologists excavated the site earlier this month, they found remnants of bodies covered in a thick layer of lime. The lime was significant as it was used in the ancient world as a form of disinfectant to prevent contamination. Nearby, there was evidence of an enormous bonfire used to incinerate the remains of plague victims and three kilns used for lime production. Pottery located in the kilns enabled the scientists to date the discovery to the middle of the 3rd century, the time of a gruesome epidemic known as the Plague of Cyprian. Cyprian, the mid-3rd century bishop of Carthage, provides us with the most detailed description of the plague's terrible effects. In his essay, De Mortalitate, on mortality, Cyprian wrote, The intestines are shaken with a continual vomiting. The eyes are on fire with infected blood. That in some cases the feet or some parts of the limbs are taken off by the contagion of diseased putrefaction. In many cases, Cyprian went on to say, blindness and deafness would ensue. And at the height of the epidemic, it's estimated to have killed 5,000 people a day in the city of Rome alone. Among them were two Roman emperors, including Hostilian and Claudius II Gothicus. The effects were just as extreme elsewhere in the empire. Sociologist Rodney Stark writes that as much as two-thirds of the population in Alexandria, Egypt, died. Modern scientists may believe that the disease was smallpox, but to Cyprian, it was a portent of the end of the world. And interestingly, this belief may have actually helped spread Christianity. Cyprian noted that Christian were, Christians were also dying from the plague, but suggested that only non-Christians had anything to fear. His compatriot, Dionysius, Bishop of Alexandria, one of the most hard-hit areas, wrote that it was a period of unimaginable joy. Get that. For Christians. The fact that even Roman emperors were dying and pagan priests had no way to explain or prevent the plague only strengthened the Christian position. 
the experience of widespread disease and death and the high probability they themselves might die made Christians more willing to embrace martyrdom. And that, somewhat paradoxically, helped the faith thrive, providing early publicity that Christianity is worth dying for. Add to this the fact that the epidemic coincided with the first Roman legislation affecting Christians, and martyrdom became both a possibility and a more reasonable option. When death is always around the corner, why not make yours count? As the martyr Apollonius is reported to have said at his trial, it is often possible for dysentery and fever to kill, so I will consider that I am being destroyed by one of these. The harrowing images of putrefying bodies and burning pyres of corpses also influenced early Christian descriptions of hell and the afterlife, which were already filled with fire and brimstone. With the spread of the plague, these threats seem increasingly real. And now that, heaven, that hell had become a place on earth, Christians were increasingly eager to avoid it in the afterlife. The epidemic that seemed like the end of the world actually promoted the spread of Christianity. And I will add to that two things. First of all, that in that particular time, the Christians were actually being accused of being the ones who had spread the plague. And so they began to experience persecution. And at the same time, it was the Christians' willingness to go in and care for the sick at the time that actually opened up a great deal of society to their message at the time. Because after all, if they're willing to do this, what kind of crazy people would do this? So at a time when everybody was running around leaving that area at the time, the Christians were running in and caring for the sick. And that began the process of spreading the gospel around the world. I'd also like to bring to you today a story from just yesterday that I ran across that echoes this. It's much more modern day, but has some of the same echoes in it. The headline is, Priest 72 Dies After Giving Up Ventilator to Younger Coronavirus Patient in Italy. Here's the story. An Italian priest made the ultimate sacrifice, hoping to save the life of someone younger than him in a battle with the novel coronavirus. John Giuseppe Berardelli. That is a very Italian name, is it not? Don Giuseppe Berardelli gave up a respirator that parishioners had purchased for him in the weeks leading up to his death. While it seems he may, have, may or may not have known to whom it would go, he gave it up in hopes of saving someone else's life. Quote, he died after testing positive for coronavirus, but also because he chose to sacrifice himself for another person, unquote, the site reports. Quote, John Giuseppe Berardelli renounced the respirator he needed and that his parish community had just purchased for him. And he did it so that the respirator could go to someone else, someone younger but ill like him, someone who, didn't, who he didn't even know, unquote. Berardelli, 72, had been archpriest of San Giovanni Battista Parish since 2006, the publication says, and he died on the evening of March 15th in a local hospital where he was taken and hospitalized for health problems. James Martin, a Jesuit priest and editor of American Mag, shared his condolences for the late priest on Twitter. He wrote, quote, He is a martyr of charity, a saint like St. Maximilian Kolbe, who in Auschwitz volunteered to take the place of a condemned man with a family and was killed, Martin wrote. Let me read that again, because tucked in there is a story I wasn't familiar with. He writes of the, of the priest who just gave up his ventilator for another. He writes of him. He is a martyr of charity, a saint-like, and get the name here, St. Maximilian Kolbe, who in Auschwitz volunteered to take the place of a condemned man with a family and was killed, 
Martin wrote. Quote that comes to mind from Jesus is, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friend. John Giuseppe died as a priest, a health worker from San Giuseppe Retirement Home, told Italian magazine Ara Barara. <laughs> That's also a very Italian magazine name. I am deeply moved by the fact that he, archpriest of Cosnigo, gave up his will to assign him to someone younger than he. Longtime mayor of Cosnigo, Giuseppe Imberti, described him to the magazine as a simple, straightforward person with a great kindness and helpfulness toward everyone, believers and non-believers. Again, the words of Jesus come to mind. Greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. So just like the plague of Cyprian, this priest dies, and, and just as it was spoken of the gentleman at Auschwitz, Christians gain a witness to the gospel by being willing to sacrifice on the behalf of others. And so whether it's sacrificing the ability to get together so that others might live, as we've done recently in our public gatherings, or whether it's doing something more concrete, as Giuseppe just did, I think God uh, sits back and looks down on his people and is very, very pleased. Next up is an article in the Wall Street Journal. This has a quite the title uh, from psychoanalyst Erica Commissar. It was uh, published March 20th in the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal. The title is Mommy, I Like Coronavirus. Here's the article. Very brief. Mommy, I like coronavirus because I get to spend time with you. A patient of mine, a lawyer quoted her son as saying, with schools closed, social events postponed, and workplaces empty, usually busy professionals find themselves at home baking cookies, playing games, watching movies, and doing arts and crafts to keep their children occupied. Some are surprised to find they enjoy it. As anxiety and fear settle over the world, there's a silver lining to this pandemic. In a self-occupied world, the coronavirus is making people reassess their priorities and values. Boy, that's the truth, isn't it? The U.S. is one of the hardest working countries in the world. More than half of all U.S. workers don't use all their vacation days, according to the U.S. Travel Association, and mandated maternity benefits are meager compared with those of other developed nations. America's productivity comes at a price, the emotional well-being of families and children. Maybe it takes a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic to make us slow down and ask why we're so intense about work. Why do we need to go into the office every day? Is it so critical to be there by 9 a.m. when we could walk the kids to school and arrive by 9.30? Is an extra car or a trip to Disney World worth giving up precious time with our families, friends, and loved ones? This crisis reminds me, she writes, of the days after 9-11 when New York City parents hunkered down and were grateful to be hanging out with their children. Many of my patients, she writes, were especially grateful to be there for their kids at such uncertain and frightening times. Some made major changes in their lives, quitting jobs they didn't like, moving to a quieter suburb or city, moving closer to their parents, making themselves less busy with work so they could devote more time to their loved ones. Many returned to their hard-driving professional lives, but the happiest were the ones who made the changes. She writes this in closing, When the pandemic passes, the world will go back to normal. That doesn't mean you have to return to the status quo. My hope is that it encourages people to be more mindful as parents and less intense as professionals. One more food for thought for those of us who are parents. It may cause us to back up a bit and consider the extracurricular activity regimen that we were involved with. 
some of the parents that I know and associate with are asking questions like, how did we forget how to be together? That kind of a question really gives us some insight into moments where God might be opening our eyes to things that we can change, things that we can tweak, things that we can work at, things that we can adjust for the next season of our lives because we want to make sure that we're capturing all those moments to be able to shape our children into the image of Christ and to keep our marriages strong, et cetera, et cetera. But it isn't something that, uh, that's going to happen on its own. So this is our chance to correct some habits that maybe we got into that maybe this is a great wake-up call from God here during the Great American Timeout. So I would say this, to say that we are not in control is good news as long as God is. And it may feel uncomfortable, but for Christians, it's oddly comforting to know that somehow God will work all of this together for good. Perhaps parents will reconnect with their kids. Perhaps Christians will realize that we have taken our gatherings together for granted for too long. To church leaders, I would say there are great opportunities here. Our church uh, has had exponentially more numbers of views online than we have at any church service live in our history. It comes with a great opportunity. Ironically, many of us will have the opportunity to share our faith in more interesting ways and more incisive ways than ever before. Let's listen to the Spirit of God for His leading and be prepared to follow. Lastly, we're coming up on the Easter season when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And as we begin to turn our faces toward the Easter season and the empty tomb, I'd like to close with a quote from Richard Lisher, longtime uh, professor of preaching at Duke University, published in a book called Sermons from Duke Chapel. The sermon was preached in the aftermath of a very well-known student dying in a tragic accident. He writes this, Jesus was like the exiles, lost and without a future. Like our sister in Christ gone before her time, Jesus was like us on our own worst days of sorrow and despair. But God made him alive so that we might live in hope. The gospel is a terrible problem solver. The resurrection of Jesus, which lies at the core of the gospel, is a promise. It's a God-given signal that the slaughtered, the starving, our sister, and all the people who seem to be slipping away from us are not meant to be discarded or forgotten and will not be. It's a sign that they and we are meant to be more, not less than we are, and that even death, as authoritative and final as it seems, is not the last word. Get this, I love this line. The resurrection is a pillar of fire ahead of the whole human race. It is testimony, not only to the depth of human hoping, but to the reality of God and Jesus Christ. If you want to know where God stands on the issues of suffering and death, if you want to know what God thinks when he sees you walking away from a cemetery, if you want to know what God feels when he sees your tears, then go to the cross and to the tomb of God's Son and listen for testimony. I have seen the future, says Jesus, and it is cold and as hard as a tomb, and it is glorious as the saints in heaven. Anyone can say it, dear brothers and sisters. You don't have to be a prophet or a preacher, but only a man or woman, a little boy or girl of faith. I have seen the future, and its name is Jesus. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. We'll see you next week. And until then, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Mm -hmm.